This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. All right, guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast, birthday edition. It is my 35th birthday on the day that we are recording this. Hello, cat. You are going to sit in my lap for this entire podcast. Anyways, today we are going to be covering... Something from the vendor side that almost everyone has experienced from the buyer side, yep. and that's your end of year sales, uh, why you do them, what taxes look like, some of the hidden costs mm -hmm. associated with being a vendor that you can obviate by having these end of year sales and why you do that. Yes. So it's, it's pretty nitty gritty. I apologize that it's going to get into the weeds on this one, but stick with us. It's actually a very informative and like pretty important thing for people to know. Oh, absolutely. So, and then the nice part is, is that this isn't just unique to Magic. You experience this all over, starting maybe late October, mid-November for, you know, Black Friday sales, and you'll start seeing prices marked down and the incentive to sell as much as possible to remove inventory, essentially. It's not yeah. just sales to help the consumer. It's sales to help the producer or the owner and alleviate the tax burden. So it, this cuts both ways. And it's basically, you know, strictly legal tax minimization is a good way. A good way to do it is to show losses. Yes. And that's one of the reasons that you have these doorbuster deals where things are below what any reasonable person would assume are cost. And in some cases they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's literally because by doing things like that and showing those losses, because now you have an itemized receipt for the purchase when you got the item. And you have an itemized receipt for the sale when it left the door. So you can show a loss on that, mm -hmm. particularly in the case where you're paying taxes based on cost. And this is when you're reporting taxes. When you're a big company, you've got it all down. When you're a little guy, vendor, doing GP boost, backpacking, trying to legitimize into an LLC, this is where you can get caught. Yes. And based on cost is basically, I'm a wholesaler. Uh, or I'm a retailer, I am buying things wholesale, say $79 a box. I have to pay sales tax on that, and if I hold it, in some places I have to pay an inventory tax. Mm -hmm. So that inventory tax is based on cost, very often, or the lower of cost or market, which is basically you set a date, and you compare cost to the market price on that date, and that's what you pay taxes based on. And this is something that a lot of people don't think of. They don't necessarily catalog. Nope. They don't necessarily hold on to their receipts. So do that, and then oh, you absolutely. won't run into a problem with it. Yeah. And one of the reasons that this is important is because in a lot of cases, you're getting taxed on this item twice. It's because you're paying the sales tax when you purchase it, and you're paying the inventory tax on top of it. So what do you do? Blow it out the door. Get it out. Be it kickback on TCG, I don't remember what their Black Friday kickback was this year. I know in the past they've done 10 to 15 percent. Yep. Star City has their sales pretty much constantly they, now. They just started their end of year sale. I think it's 15 percent with the promo code uh, that went out today. Pretty good. Yep. Channels always got a hump. Yes, I think is their five percent code. Yep. Uh, and then they do their you know Black Friday, Cyber Monday hey, here's a set release, let's throw some stuff on sale. And this is the type of thing that not only is it good because it drums up sales, mm -hmm. 
It gets you through some old inventory that you may be sitting on, but it helps you obviate some of your tax burden. Yes. Uh, and why do this at the end of the year? Well, end of the year, everyone's shopping. Everyone expects lower prices, sales, whatever, especially after Christmas when you get that Christmas money and you need a shiny beat to utter shit underground sea for your EDH deck. What are you going to spend your couple hundred bucks that you got? Hopefully it's enough for a UC. If not, save up. You'll get there. Buy yourself your UC. Yep. That's fine. And I think it's it's important that when you start out, when you form your LLC, your S-Corp, whatever, make sure you're mindful of either tax code or hire an accountant. An accountant will save your butt. Oh, yeah. And they're much more affordable than you think they are. They pay so, for themselves, essentially. I, they really do, uh, especially when it comes to stuff like this, yep. where you're like, all right, how how can I minimize my tax burden mm -hmm. is a question that pretty much every accountant expects to hear. You're not going to, you know, surprise them. You're not going to no. do anything illegal. It's just how it is. Yeah. And where are my deductions? What can I deduct, especially for an industry like this? We've mentioned it before. Travel for business, which is essentially what going to a show is. A lot of that is deductible at some point. It's, you just have to you know, save your itemized receipts. So. And that's especially in this business. And I don't know how Troll did it. Uh, you know, at many, we would, rather than itemize the buys, we would line the buys. So okay. like, oh, I just did a $2,500 buy. Write it down, sign it. We don't make the other person sign it necessarily. Uh, other companies, a lot of companies actually, at booths, don't even do that. It's just a cash in, cash out, yep. figure it out on the back end. Yep. Uh, not sure, did Troll do anything differently? Um, so uh, I've worked in a number of systems. Um, the the one that parallels Mini is actually face-to-face. Uh, -face, and to my knowledge, they were one of the first vendors that I saw really doing this. But because I didn't really have experience with Mini, just existing up here in New England, Face comes down from Montreal to Boston to vend. Mini's not coming up, you know? Yeah. Uh, face was actually doing it similar, similarly for tax reasons, but it was... Uh, more customs initially and it just showed that there was an accountability and it meant that face started every event in the negative because they had to pay tax on every buy and it made their job buying cards overall easier because they were working within tax code it just meant that they had to be more efficient with their buys and their sales they had to buy higher to get what they need and sell lower to to move volume but they used that sign in sign out method uh troll had a different system and depending on what era it was of their system it could have been we are uh like price binding everything on the back end so you pick up your price piles and you put you have a couple of five rows laid out and in there are you know your dollar amounts and everything kind of gets striped into oh, its okay. dollar amount or and i mentioned this on the quick hits episode we just did there was a, a point in time where some of the events were so large and so fast paced and i'm not talking about just like gen con where that's a completely different monster like gp richmond which was a gold rush event in parallel with another event and then there was uh gpdc which was legacy after a true name nemesis was made legal um 
buys were coming in so quickly everywhere that every event staff had one person putting in all the buys into the into the actual troll system as they came in. So they were doing something called reverse cart, which is essentially you when you were logged in uh, as an employee, you just had the ability to pl uh, plus to your cart to put a card into the system as opposed to minus to withdraw it. And that was itemizing the buys as they went. Okay. And uh, for a period of time, and I don't know if it was from the beginning up to now or what have you, uh, Troll actually associated a cost of goods with everything we brought in. So when, Smart. So when every card went into the system, there was cogs on it, and they could essentially do their inventory tax how they wanted to by inventory level or you know, like markets or retail, like you said, or uh, cogs overall because everything had a number and it was, you know, uh, within their ability to deliver that information if requested. That's pretty smart. Um, I think that that inventory tracking is honestly one of the most underutilized facets in the industry. Yep. A lot of people like, you know, Collection Tracker exists obviously or Archidact or mm -hmm. whatever other software people are using. Uh, not to mention, you know, Crystal, TCG, yep. whatever. Yeah. But that gets kind of difficult to do at shows. So I think that having that reverse card technology is something that a lot more vendors should utilize. Uh, because I think, you know, especially tracking in real time, I mean, it, it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, you're the software guy, it would be easier to implement on the small scale than the large. So if I'm just like a 10-man operation, mm -hmm. I would want to do that. Because at that point, it's easier to unroll, and it makes it a lot easier for me and my employees to track stuff, for me to have the data to give to an accountant, for me to keep track of for taxes, and to know, like, hey, I spent 17000 you know, this weekend. Yep. And according to my reverse cart, I should have only spent about fifteen eight. Well, that's, you know, acceptable, or I should have spent twenty. Yep. according to my reverse cart, and then it's great. Everyone's getting a good steak dinner. Yeah. So. so both systems usually brought with it the same number. The only time it would really differentiate was when you get down towards the, the bulk, essentially. Okay, yeah. You know, otherwise, um, doing it all at the end after it's been striped meant end of day work, where you took all those buys and processed them back into the system that day. Reverse card allowed you to do it as your buyers were handing you stuff. Okay. And, you know, cogs there. Implementation-wise, small or large, it's the same. It's just the ends are completely different when you don't look at it from a tax standpoint, so it's a bit of a digression. But when you have information like that, it allows you to say, okay, on average, we spent per card this much in this area. It is not worth our time to go back there and pay these fees because the quality of item that we bring back is not what we need. Or and uh, instead of making generalizations, which is just, all right, we keep going out there and these shows keep feeling bad and we keep buying okay, but we don't know how long these cards live on the live in back stock if you don't have that data attached to it. You know, um, like yeah. the more granular you can get, the better it's going to be overall for your reporting, the harder it is to implement though. So that, that kind of thing's a trade-off, right? For a smaller org, I like the live version better like the true reverse card better because that means you can hone your numbers not hone your numbers that's wrong you can fill your buy list more accurately uh, throughout the day and if it's all sunk together keep it updated so you're never buying too much of one thing based on what your expected churn value is 
So as that smaller op- operation, a local store, you get the shot at a Magic Fest because you know Channel brought you in as a local, right? If you have that live sync reverse card, you can see my my example, Vendillion Click and Vendillion Click and Tarmago. If you buy four of each on the day, you know you're gonna it's gonna take you two months to move those, and between you and another buyer when you're looking through to see what you need, everything's up to date. You know that between the two of you, you've bought those four, you satisfied your goals, you can either not buy them or drop the price. So okay. that is a little a little bit better uh, for the small operation and why. For a company like Troll, it doesn't matter if you overbuy on a card like that that you know you're going to churn, you're still going to churn it. You know, you're still fine buying it at that same price as long as you don't buy, you know, 20 when you need four. That's uh, bad for both, essentially. But... And then, uh, as you mentioned, to bring it back for tax purposes, yes, absolutely, it is it is great but tedious to do that. I, as a local, I would probably want to do um, what Mini did, which was uh, a profit versus loss. Yeah. Rather than than Cogs, because Cogs across yeah. the way is is going to be fairly difficult for something like a board game that's sitting there if you want to blow it out the door your margins on it are so slim anyway that you would rather take the loss and reclaim that inventory space so proving a loss on something like that is going to be better for you than just putting uh you know distro cogs on it and letting sit letting it sit there until you can churn it at a profit yeah and i i think that's especially when it comes to smaller operations the premium on that space is something that does factor into yeah. tax, really. Uh, not just cost of goods, but like, hey, if, if I'm going to be taxed on this, wouldn't I rather have it be something that's constantly generating revenue, mm-hmm. that's constantly going in and out, than this game that I've been sitting on for a year and a half now? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's similar to cards. Uh, if I'm going to pay an inventory tax on a half million dollars in cards based on cost would i rather it be a half million dollars in fetch lands or would i rather it be a half million dollars in sarkin's own ceilings personally i know which one i would go for but that's not the one you should go for correct because the fetch lands are generating money way quicker than sark yeah than the sarkin's own ceilings which at least you can show a loss on that, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Here's all the receipts from every buy I've ever done on TCG Player. Suck it, Sarkin's on ceiling. And this all boils down to we're seeing the sales numbers come up from people. We're seeing percentages off. We're seeing coupon codes. We're seeing bundles together. And all of this stuff, when you look across sites, is like, why this, not that? And a lot of it comes down to the way they're doing their taxes. If they're going for... You know, COGS, that's going to be a sale on one thing. If they're going for profit versus loss, it's going to be another. And they're going to want to reclaim that inventory space on profit versus loss. And they're fine eating that loss because this thing's been sitting here for too damn long. You know, Ben Blywis up to like last year had those hashtag get it off my desk deals. Yeah. I'm still waiting on my tinfoil hat. But that's kind of what they were. You know, they weren't for tax purposes. It was just literally sharing this inventory space. Same reason. Just, you know, different delivery. And this is one of those things that not a lot of people think of. You, you do this work from home. It's just a one-person operation. You're paying yourself. You don't ha- you're not really worrying about inventory tax. It's just sales tax and the price of doing business on TCG Player. And if you make enough, then, you know, maybe the IRS will knock you for PayPal transactions. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. So all of this is to say 
Don't open an LGS. It's a terrible idea. It's not a good way to make money. Not unless you're selling D and D books that, and minis. Yeah. Uh, oh God, for D and D books, Amazon has it for twenty dollars, fulfilled by Wizards of the Coast. Oh, you want to talk about profit versus loss taxes? Yeah, D and D books. <laughs> oh my God. But that's that's one of the reasons that you'll see some of these sales pop up, and it's mm-hmm. something that I think, as an LGS, people don't necessarily consider at the end of the year because you know what you're absolutely right it's hard out there for an lgs right now and you need to do what you can to make sure you're making money yep and those sales may not be the best way to do it but a a great example there's a store here in st louis that has in perpetuity 20 percent off for cash always that's built into their buy prices great they have a good stock they fire legacy the community loves the place and it's something that you can do that makes it a little bit easier to have sales yes that's you know maybe whatever and the reason is you know when you're taking that versus a credit card well your credit card processing fee is going to be anywhere from three to seven percent anyways plus if you're using a point of sale software they probably have one tacked on there uh, be it Shopify or whatever. Square, what have you. Yeah. yeah, Square, any of that. So by having that cash, you're effectively, you know, almost offering sick deal in store, mm-hmm. which sounds not great. But when you think of it from a tax and profitability standpoint, you're ending up where you would anyways. Yeah. And that's a type of sale that you can run as a store that like people think is great but doesn't lose you money and helps with taxes because you can show, hey, uh, you know, I made less off of this than I was supposed to. Great. So it goes. Let's do it. Yeah. And And that's, you know, from my perspective, a lot of stores, the thing that they're most afraid of is these sales because they think it's going to lose them money when losing money is not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Because showing that loss does give you a little bit of leeway on your taxes, depending on how yep. much your business grows. Yeah, exactly. Because they haven't sat down with that accountant yet and say, okay, look, what can we do to minimize here? We want to you know, save money where we can. Is there anything that we can do? And this, this is one of them. And, and like I said at the beginning, this is something that, that cuts you know, both ways. It's uh, a clever way to reduce your tax burden and at the same time, give your customers a little more you know something that yeah. they're looking for unless you're ebay <sighs> then the standard practice there is completely different oh the standard practice there is don't care about anyone but getting that money yeah exactly but you know my my opinion of their customer service is a completely separate thing <laughs> uh it's uh, a disaster don't use it a little bit or not a little a lot of it it is a lot of it of a disaster yeah disaster pretty piece. much so, I know there's a there's a lot that goes on at the corporate level. Uh, taxes is one of those unique things. Assigning cost of goods, etc., is is important. That's uh, very dry. All of it is very dry and fairly fairly heady. If you're not looking to actually open up your own physical location, so we might come back to this. We might not if we find something else interesting to talk about. It's just you know serendipitous. It's the time of the year we wanted to get back to some vendor stuff. We'll probably stick with that over the next couple of weeks if we can and you know good faith conversation around this stuff is that 
this is what's going on. You know, pull back the curtain and this is that, you know, how it works for us yeah. as a vendor and for you as a customer. It benefits everybody to do these sales. And this is why you see them not just in the, you know, gaming industry, but all over. Everywhere, yeah. yeah. And what, one of the, the dumbest techniques is to just like take a an item price, put above it original price in red, slash it out, and then leave the price that was there previously to trick people into thinking that what they're paying yeah. now it's a great deal. Yeah, because they added the original price above it, quote unquote. But yeah. With that though, I think I'm ready to move into picks to uh, wake people up. Let's do it. All right. Uh, I'll go first. I like mine. That works. So uh, mine is a little unique this week compared to some others. It is uh, Commander Isha. Asha. I don't know how to pronounce this. From uh, Judgment. Asha. E e s h a. I I don't think I've ever yeah. heard this pronounced. Uh, this is actually ironically one of the first cards I played in standard in a bird themed deck and that is kind of where we stick for this card so uh, Isha I found interesting because it fell off my radar I really didn't think it was great nobody would be playing it overall but it turns out and if you saw the, the stocks graph that I just had up a moment ago it dipped and has started to come back kind of interestingly and it it doesn't really coincide with Commander Legends, but that's really what we're seeing buoy this card right now. So uh, Commander Legends kind of came in hot and gave us other options with Ishai and uh, a mono-white Kanji as generals. Ishai is basically a card in these decks, despite being legendary. It is just w one of the bunch. And it already fit with the original Kanji. So aside from Derevi... All the decks that this card really fits into are skies-based decks, which are essentially blue-white flyers, and you buff them however you can, either with uh, additional creatures, with enchantments, with equipment. The, the, the plan you're really trying to enact is just attacking. That's it. Turn your creature sideways. And that's what old Kanji was about. You know, you kicked it, and then all your creatures get plus X plus X, where X was the kick, the kicked amount. The the new kanji, I'll bring this one up because I just got to it. Um, you're attacking creatures. When it attacks, your attacking creatures get plus 2 plus 0. When it blocks, your blocking creatures get plus 0 plus 2. And then you surround that with a package of enhancements for your creatures, and you just heavy punch. And that's really what you're looking at doing. So this is just... A tribal creature based deck. It's not flashy at all. It, uh, it does what it does well, and these lists are really tight. When you start uh, cutting into these things, or like the original Kanji list is super tight. There's not a lot of deviation off the norm. That's why I like Isha in that deck, and I think we're going to see Isha kind of standardized in uh, Kanji Skywarden, which is the new uh, card, and uh, Ishai as well, because. Uh, Isha plays into these strategies and this is fresh eyes for this card and these strategies which as I mentioned before is just heavy punch now the timeline on this as long as we see continued and organic demand will probably be about six months before we can cash out to buy a list the way it's been growing over at Card Kingdom over the last couple of weeks. 
And that actually puts us right around Strixhaven release, which could be extremely good for both the strategy of Skies as well as this card. I doubt we're going to get a reprint of Commander Isha anytime soon. It seems like a lot of the cards in this set, they would rather recycle the name on a new card overall rather than a yeah. reprint. So we're kind of safe there. But if Strixhaven brings us more than just human wizards, it brings us more birds and more bird wizards, then we are going to see a higher jump right around there. So, And I, I think it's very likely that it goes up with Strixhaven because I do think we see some amount of birds there. I, yeah. And I think that, you know, just thematically, it makes sense for us to have more birds there. So I think it may, like, that your timeline's spot on, and it may be that if you're patient, maybe you can hold it for a little bit longer and get a little bit extra. I'm never one, you know, like, get, get your margin and run. Yes. is my modus operandi obviously but uh for those of you that might be a little bit greedier i probably pretty good yeah the other thing is if it is a bird related set and we don't get bird wizards that's fine as long as we get some buffs out of it because that's yeah. what we're seeing when you look at the high synergy cards and i'll bring this up really quick you're just seeing a lot of creatures and a lot of enchantments like favorable winds etc that just really buff the plan of creatures with flying and attack. Like, that's what you're looking to do, is just not buff your birds, not buff your wizards, buff your flyers, which happen to be bird wizards, and just kind of go from there. You know, there, there are some things, when I brought up the list, you'll see like Flurry of Wings, Migration Route, uh, Beck and Call from Gate Crashes on here as well, and those play into the bird theme, but not the attacking theme, which is what I think is going to actually push uh, Isha overall. Yeah. So, I I also think that what you touched on there when you were talking about this is something that they prefer to tack on to new named cards is really important where you're looking at not just this card but others in terms of reprint equity is the way things have gotten now it is much more likely that they will put it on a new card yep. on some of the stuff from the old Dominaria era. Mm -hmm. than it is that they will, you know, reprint it outside of a commander set. But it's more likely they just print a new version of it that does cool new things because creatures, why not push them as much as we possibly can and make them even more busted? Yep. Anyways. I, and, and uh, I, like, and to piggyback on that point, as well as we just kind of go tit for tat on this, and then I'll toss it back to you for your pick. Sure. At 4 CMC, a flying 2-2 with protection from creatures does not really stack up with what we see right now for creatures as a whole. So that's actually another very good point, is if they were going to reprint a card with, named after as an homage to Commander Isha, it's going to be much different from this, because this is underwhelming for what you're getting, especially as a yeah, legend. True name is a protection from everything, basically 3-1 for 3 mana. So. Yep, exactly. Hey! Congrats. Yeah. So... My pick, full disclosure, insider baseball, Urza's Legacy Foil Planar Collapse. Why am I picking this? Because me and a few other people are planning to buy them all out. We've already started buying some of them. Sorry. Uh, I think our rationale for that is sound. 
It is an old border starfoil, which all of which have pretty much been going up, reserve list or not. Second, this effect, this impending disaster, delusions of mediocrity, second chance, this like during your upkeep, if then clause. Yep. Outside of Defense of the Heart, which was printed as a judge promo, it's not something they're ever going to touch again. So it, it's just not in their current design space, it seems like. They don't like this delayed effect. They don't like permanence that do a thing and leave the board. Similar to Serenity. Uh, it, it does something if certain conditions are met, and that complicates the board state and leads yes. to hiring questions, timing questions, all kinds of stuff that hurts arena because they want that gameplay to be clean it's ready for mobile guys the game is flawless why add layering and more complications to it and cards like this in general i think are just a really smart buy i think that at 11 dollars for the foil that is incredibly undercosted for something from this era where you averaged less than one rare foil per box uh, that's right it was on the uh the old math yeah one in 25 packs right yeah something like that and then you take a look at the card market listings well there are currently on card market and i checked this a couple days ago and they were dropping there as well independent of anything i had been involved with uh when earlier this week there were twice as many listings of foil planar collapse as there were on card market. There were on TCG as there were on card market. Uh, since then, the near mint like play foil listings have gone from 76 to 12. Jeez. Uh, so drying up. Uh, additionally, if you go and take a look at card market, all listings total. All languages, French, Portuguese, Italian, uh, I think English, German, Japanese. Uh, anyways, all listings, there are 60 total. Yep. If you go by condition, because that is unconditioned, just completely, here's, here's everything we yeah. have. Yeah. I, you want the trash? You got it. Uh, if we do minimum condition, good or better, we go from 60 to 45. So that includes Portuguese, French, German. Yeah, all languages. Yeah, all languages. So all of those are generally priced at 30 euros or less. So roughly, you know, 35, 40 bucks uh, at current exchange. Now, looking at TCG, we have Light Play Near Mint, a total of nine listings before we go from $25 to $40 for this card. I think this is the type of thing that just through natural demand, even outside of any market manipulation going on, just stands to game. It's not a card they're going to touch again. It's, for us old heads, a fairly iconic card uh, because in the storyline, it's when Urza said, you know, this plane can't do shit against the Phyrexian snap, it's gone. He did it before Galactus, that's all I'm saying. Was that but was that Sarah? Yeah, that was Sarah. Yeah, he folded uh, Sarah and threw it at Phyrexia. Yeah. Um 
But that's why I think that this is solid. And I think that this also points out a good opportunity for other people with cards from this era. There's a lot of cards from back here that people don't know about that are incredibly powerful, do very good things, and have a lot of room for mobility, mm -hmm. just from casual EDH, competitive EDH, whatever. And I think that at two mana, this effect is pretty dumb, uh, especially since it has that beloved clause that Wizards hates. These creatures can't be regenerated this turn. Yep. Uh, but that's why I think it's solid. I think that even if you get in on retail now, this card's never going down for the foil. No. Ever. You'll always be able to get what you put in on it. And I think timeline-wise, it could be anywhere from a week to three to four months before you get a return. It depends on how quickly Card Kingdom buys other people out, Star City buys other people out, whatever. Uh, but if that happens, I think you see a much quicker return on this. And I think this is the kind of thing that when it hits 30 bucks, just throw it on sick deals for 20 to 25 and double up, and yep. you're fine. Uh, it's also the type of thing that, and I know this from looking around here, a lot of LGSs just had sitting around because nobody cares about this card at all. So check them out. Yep. You may get lucky. Yeah, I, uh, the, I forgot that this was kind of a pseudo cycle uh, where yeah. it's like when these conditions are met in your upkeep, sacrifice this, uh, do a thing, despite the fact that I have serenities for dredge sideboards because Leyline of the Void, fuck you. <laughs> yep. Uh, and I never think about foils from this era, and that is to my detriment, because these are a uh, diminishing product. They're not making any more of them. They're not making them look like this anymore. And the longer this game lives, the more these will be bought, Thus, the fewer left in the general population. And we've seen time after time when people chase stuff like this. You know, we can go back and look at pyramids, etc. That these yeah. cards move, all the prices go up, and then they never return back to where they were. So there's always profit to be made here. You just have to be willing to spend the money and dedicate the, the time and the resources to them. So even if even as a quick flip, I think this is perfectly fine. And if you pick up, you know, even a few just to, to have maybe one to play, still yeah. perfectly fine to hold on to for the long run because this is a card that, you know, if you pick up now, you'll still be able to get out at even at a quote-unquote played condition later on for profit yeah. and not feel bad about it. I don't think there's any reason or any way you should not think about stuff like this and look into it when you have the opportunity. Yeah, and I, I think especially from this era, yes, like early foils is a great time to do this because you look at cards like, I mean, look at Mercadian Masks uh, and the Pirate, the Rishidan cycle. Yep. Those cards were bulk a year ago for the foils. I mean, like, you could get a foil of the rare for bulk rare price because mm -hmm. they were seen as so bad. And then it just takes one or two things, all of a sudden that card, which is not going to get reprinted because the effect isn't in current design space foils worth a ton more yeah it's just good opportunity exactly it, this is as close as you're going to get to a safe haven outside of the reserve list because to my surprise this was not on the reserve list yeah right it's not whatever 
No, I, th- I thought it would be, despite the fact that, like, Delusions is or something, which is weird. Yeah, that, and that's the thing. Sim- you know, some of the cards in the cycle are, but this one isn't. Yep. And impending disaster, uh, whatever. Yep, and, and that makes it even more unique in, in this regard. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, I like the card. I, I like the pick. Uh, obviously, I was kind of surprised overall at the stats behind this thing. Um, it's one of those cards where it's like, yeah, sure, there's a clause to it, but that doesn't make mean it's bad in EDH or bad to hold on to uh, for any reason. So Yeah, especially in multiplayer formats. The, this cycle specifically is incredibly good mm-hmm. and just doesn't get its due because I don't know if there's just not enough eyes or what, but outside of Defense of the Heart, of course, yes. because Judge Promo. Yeah, yeah exactly. But I think that'll do it for us this week, everybody. We will catch you next week, hopefully, on your podcast networks as we found out we had a problem this week that I believe I have resolved. So uh, until then, for at MTGcabalcast on Twitter, Patreon, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, Facebook, and YouTube, I am at Halt, I am Reptar, you are... At Thirsty Sizzler. We'll see you next week.